This is Fine, episode 1.4, No State Solution. Welcome to This is Fine. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jerry. And today we're going to talk about foreign policy in the Obama and Trump administrations, starting off with President Barack Obama and the last five days of his presidency. I think we actually would like to start, though, something that happened almost at the front of his presidency, taking it all the way back to 2009 to his Nobel Peace Prize lecture uh, delivered in December 2009. And I think what's really fascinating about this Peace Prize speech is that it turns over a lot of the dogma about Obama, which is to say that there is a lot of critique, mostly from the right, but in some cases from the left as well, that Obama is not really committed to intervention or U.S. power. But what I think is really striking about this speech is that it is everywhere a declaration of U.S. power. There are parts of it that uh, read very cleanly as if they could have been penned by George Bush's foreign policy speechwriters. He defends U.S. military action. He says that he is the head of a state, unlike uh, previous Nobel Peace Prize recipients like King and Mandela, and that war is necessary, just war, to be fair, but that not only is just war necessary, war in the service of the liberal international project is what has sustained the liberal international project, that without the United States armies, the peace and prosperity of the post-war era, as he describes them, would not exist. And I think it's sort of a fascinating jumping off point to talk about the successes and failures of Obama's foreign policy. Yeah, and I think that in in the speech, as in kind of past interviews with Obama uh, that you can read from before he even really announced his candidacy, you can really see, you can see what he thinks. And it's not, it's not particularly secretive. Like he's not being coy about what he believes. He's not really trying to very much disguise uh, what he thinks. It's really a case of, you know, he is who you think he is, except I think a lot of people, myself included, actually, I mean, in 2008, I don't have a memory of having read all those things about Obama, but certainly like, you know, I projected as a voter my preferences onto him. And in some ways he satisfied them and in many ways he did not. But uh, but yeah, you can definitely see the echoes from the past in uh, how Obama's foreign policy especially has played out in the, the last eight years. Do you think that was shaped your sort of perception of him? Because it was mine as well as actually a, a detractor of Obama in the 08 primary campaign against Hillary Clinton in the opposition to the Iraq war that he represented a striking change from the foreign policy shibboleths of sort of past presidencies, that that his opposition to the Iraq war was not just a situational one, but that it really represented a break. And, and I think this his presidency has not been a break, and also this Nobel speech suggested it hasn't. But I wonder if it's that Iraq war opposition that sort of generated that. Well, belief. I think for me, it was definitely the case that I was hoping it would be a break, like that that I was hoping that this would really be a different foreign policy that than we have seen previously. And 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 I, I guess I should say, unsurprisingly, sort of you know, almost ten years on, my my take on it has been, and I know that we sort of disagreed about this before the show, but my my take on it is that there's been a lot more continuity in American foreign policy than than not. And so I guess in retrospect, it's not terribly surprising that a lot of the contours remained unchanged by his presidency. Do you think there's a case to be made? So, you know, I'm someone who wants Obama, if anything, to be more interventionist. I think we can and will talk about Syria later in the show. And, and probably also we should talk about Libya and the failures uh, in Libya. Uh, which would point against that. But do you think there's a case that he has, in fact, tried to break away from 
some of the foreign policy continuities, as you put it, of previous administrations, and it's just proven very resistant to doing so? Yeah, well, there's been this, you know, his so-called pivot to Asia, I guess, which is not maybe, which is maybe a different, like, sort of tactical stance rather than maybe a strategic stance, I guess. You could view that as sort of a difference. And, you know, there was this profile of his, I guess, what is his actual role? Is it just like foreign policy advisor, Ben Rhodes? He is the deputy national security advisor for strategic communications. I don't know what that means. I know what all those individual words mean, but I do not know what actual thing he does. But well, his job is to be the mind meld of Obama, Jerry. As, that's right. As legions of staffers will tell any uh, reporter writing a 50,000 word article about him. And, you know, there, there, there is a lot of definitely in, in both the interviews with Rhodes and in this the big article uh, from the spring by Jeffrey Goldberg called The Obama Doctrine, um, there is a, a lot that comes across as a frustration with, you know, what we call the foreign policy establishment, uh, that these are people who are, Rhodes calls them the blob, in that they're just like this kind of, I, I don't really know, like this indistinguishable, like, m- mass of, like, you know, individuals that kind of like all hover around and like circulate through these, you know, the same institutions and stuff like that. And they're kind of like always pushing American foreign policy in various directions. Uh, From Obama, it was definitely like frustration with the Gulf states, for example, like he clearly has no patience with them, you know, thinks that they are basically freeloaders, which I, you know, I would agree with. Um, And, and, And funnily enough, I think so would our president elect. Although actually, here's a place where I want to push back. I think that the argument conceived of in both the David Samuels profile of Ben Rhodes and in in Jeffrey Goldberg's long Obama doctrine, I think this argument is very self-serving for Obama. It's Obama who appoints Samantha Power. It's Obama who appoints Hillary Clinton and then John Kerry as his secretaries of state. And it's Obama who surrounded himself with not only talked vigorously about liberal internationalism and interventionism in his Nobel Peace Prize speech, but then surrounded himself with, with advocates for that position. And it's, not, and it's weirdly also a convenient narrative for his opponents, since Republicans like to accuse him as being soft. But at the end of the day, he said he was a thing, then he acted as a thing, and also appointed advisors who supported that thing. So I, I, I find it a little bit strange that there's a sort of late second term pull away, oh, no, 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 I'm not. I, you know, maybe with the exception, again, of Syria, where, where there's one clear break from sort of a Washington consensus. But, you know, I, th- I think one does have to reckon with the fact that the foreign policy advisors that he's chosen have largely and and strongly been in the sort of long continuity with previous Democratic presidents and indeed previous Republican presidents prior to Bush, too, who I think actually represented a, a substantial change. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that his presidency ultimately is going to look like uh, a presidency that where the tactical goals changed, but sort of the strategic goals remained fairly constant. Right. And and I think there's something kind of interesting about wanting to position himself, especially as historical legacy runs along, as someone who was slightly against this consensus, despite which advisors he appointed and despite supporting the troop surge, etc. Because I think that um, maybe there's some perception from Obama, a student of history, that the long view of history is going to look at some of this interventionism unfavorably. So... I've been trying to make sense of like, you know, what is a good way of encapsulating like Barack Obama's foreign policy? And the conclusion that I've kind of come to is that if you looked at, for example, all the public pronouncements of 
you know, Bush, Bush two and and his sort of neocon cabinet and uh, surrounding sort of various attaches of that cabinet. I think that what you had was you had like a I'm not going to call it like a concrete policy goal, but you definitely had a strategic vision. And I, I personally find that strategic vision abhorrent, but it was definitely like very straightforward. Like they were pro-American hegemony. Like they thought it was a great thing. Uh, they would get up on TV and they would say, oh, like, you know, the invasion of Iraq, it's not going to cost us any money. But you could tell that their hearts were like those pronouncements, just like they were just saying that they didn't, but they didn't really care whether it cost money or not. I mean, maybe if it didn't, that would be great. But well, they were romantics. They, they, they were, were romantics, but they were like, clear. that was clearly like a subsidiary concern. Like they had, they had a vision and they were like, okay, this is our thing. And we're going to like steamroll forward with this. The flip side to this is that Barack Obama has sort of, you know, he has this Nobel Prize speech, right? And he does say things like, okay, you know, war is necessary sometimes. Like, okay, I mean, sure, why not, right? War is necessary sometimes. But that doesn't really tell us anything about, like, whether this specific war, for example, is necessary. You could take that Nobel Prize speech and you could kind of say, like, you know, maybe looking at a question like Syria, in what direction would he go based on that? Well, like you could plausibly make a case in either either direction on that. And what what I really think is the kind of overarching theme of his foreign policy is that strategically he's committed to that to like the, you know, the international liberal liberal order under American hegemony. But what he doesn't want is actually to what he wants is to do it on the cheap. On when I say on the cheap, like I don't think he really sees a whole lot of benefit from like putting troops on the ground again in Syria or someplace like that. So my take is from his perspective is just like much better to maintain a particular sort of status quo. You do it in uh, ways that do not arouse sort of like mass opposition, say by like launching ground wars. You do it by via covert operations and drone strikes and bombings if you need to. But you really kind of like keep all that stuff in the background and you police the existing borders of kind of like what is allowed and what can be allowed to happen without really trying to alter them in the way that the second Bush presidency did. So you read Don't Do Stupid Shit, the sort of um, at least second term Obama foreign policy doctrine, as being in one part realist in the sense of non-romantic, unlike the neo-Trotskyites of the Bush 2 administration not believing in revolution, but really in a large sense being commercial. Uh, like, this will save blood and treasure. Because I guess what's interesting is then there's perhaps a lot of continuity, although neither of the men would like to hear it, between Obama and Trump's foreign policy. If you think that the reservations are primarily about, say, you know, GDP spent on preserving American hegemony. First of all, I mean, we'll get to this, but I, it's not clear to me whether Trump has anything that like actually is a foreign policy or whether he's... Because, like, my thesis is that he's... Trump, just, not a genius. He's just a guy who says stuff. Um but I don't think that's actually like that strange. I mean, there have been presidents before who have who haven't had strong commitments to, for example, like, I don't know, projecting U.S. military force, not because they were like opposed to the use of force, but just because they thought that it wasn't like a particularly good use of resources. Right. And so at some point, it's just like you 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 pick and choose. Right. You you decide, is this a good use of my resources and political capital or is it not? And I think Barack Obama definitely chose to that it was not like he decided that it was not a good use of his political resources and political and the resources of the country 
to, for example, I don't know, like, yeah, increase like US presence in the Middle East. I mean, Afghanistan, I think, actually, which we hadn't mentioned before, is like a pretty good example of this, because the the problem, like sort of in a, in a more general sense, is that when you try to do hegemony on the cheap, you're, you're really not going to achieve like a lot of the goals. So, for example, like the US invasion of Afghanistan, it's like it's a little bit of a stalemate, right? Like nobody can kick the US out of Afghanistan, but you can't like you have 100,000 troops or however many it is in the country and like they can't do anything either, right? So it's like a stalemate. Again, you maintain the status quo, but you can't really... 100,000 troops in a country that size, like you just can't do anything that way. I guess I, guess I feel somewhat differently about this, particularly in terms of Obama, I think if there's a reservation, there's a reservation in terms of what he believes American power can do. But I don't actually think there's as much of a reservation about the goals. You know, again, I, I sort of, I read that Nobel Prize speech sincerely. He really does believe in American exceptionalism which I think is very different than... I think that's a, absolutely true. ...a sort of classic realist position. And and I think that his main concern in terms of wasting American treasure, basically that tribalism is a very powerful force. He says this multiple points. You know, I don't actually think it's a concern about GDP. I think it's just a sort of, you could spend 4% of GDP trying to achieve this goal and you wouldn't. I, I think Afghanistan is a little bit interesting, though, because... St- believing these things as he does, you know, he he still commits to the surge. I don't think it was 100,000 troops, but I think he increased troops to maybe 60,000 U.S. troops. Okay. And if he has to. But, but I mean, I think there's something interesting about that. If, if he really believed, oh, I'm not going to waste American treasure, and this is sort of about force projection in American hegemony, but but really trying to do it as much in a on the cheap as possible, I don't think he would have committed to the surge. I, I think committing to the surge was Barack Obama sort of wrestling with the possibility of American power was. So I think that the reason he committed to it wasn't because he thought, oh, this won't cost that much over time, or this will cost less over a period of time. I think it was because he was still sort of saying, maybe American power can still achieve the ends that I want it to do in terms of, of deploying these forces. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I don't know who told him the 60,000 troop number. The generals. The generals. I mean, I'm sure that the generals probably wanted, you know, if the generals could could have like however many troops they want, they'd probably say, give us 500,000 troops. Like, why not? Right. I'm sure that he went to, you know, McChrystal or whoever it was that was in charge at the time and probably said, like, what's the minimum number that you think you can do that you can do your job with? And he probably and then, you know, I'm sure there was some negotiation about it. But like the point that I'm trying to get at is that if you really wanted to make this work, if you were like super committed and you were like, OK, we're going to occupy Afghanistan and we're just going to like reconstruct the entire country. Like you clearly need more than 60,000 troops to do that. I don't think that's a really like a reasonable number. And so what I what I suspect happened is that like he was like, well, can we do it with this minimal number? And the answer turned out to be no, but like, you know, you, you try. And and to say that he was committed to doing this like on a, on the cheap is not to say that he didn't think it was worth doing at all, just that he didn't want to commit the overwhelming resources that were probably required to do it. Bush clearly was willing to commit hundreds of thousands of troops to Iraq, whereas like sure, Obama was not, right? And that's a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I guess, again, I, I locate the differences not in terms of the willingness of commitment of power, um, or even actually obeying international law, you know, I think Obama sort of makes a fetish of international law when when it suits him, when praising the sure. conflict in Afghanistan, but ignores it when it doesn't suit him, like, say, drone strikes that kill American civilians not on a battlefield, or drone strikes in general, um, you know, targeted killing memos. I, I don't know exactly how those aligned. Guantanamo is still open. So, I, I mean, 
I think the difference is maybe in terms of sort of a sober understanding of what American power can really do. Like, this is actually sort of one of my fundamental issues with Obama, is that I think he sort of overlearns the lessons of the last intervention. He feels like, okay, Afghanistan didn't work. I let myself get talked into Libya, so I'm not going to do anything in Syria. And I think that from one aspect, you could say, and maybe you will, in fact, just say this right right now, he absolutely is learning the correct lessons. American power can't do anything in these cases. We would only make things worse. But I, I think you turn around and you look and you see a president who, from some of his critics who, who think he should take more of a hand, has allowed really terrible things to happen and allowed countries that have more of a realist orientation, uh, like Russia and like Iran, to develop their sort of power bases in a much more significant way. Um, and, and I think that from both the humanitarian axis um, and from a sort of realist perspective, the choice not to intervene in, in Syria is the wrong one. So I think, I think interestingly, like, if there's a failure of the Obama doctrine, I think it's sort of believing a little too much in a skepticism of American power. Meanwhile, here, 450,000 Syrians have died, Assad is still in power, and the Russians, through not much application of their own military force, have, I think, successfully basically achieved a uh, Assad-winning stalemate slash peace deal. Okay, so in order to kind of illuminate kind of the problem that I have with this approach is that I, w- I want to cite a, a guy who's written a book and that's been making the rounds on a lot of websites, whatever. Uh, this fellow by the name of Andrew Basevich, uh, he's a professor emeritus of history and international relations at Boston University. And uh, the book that he's written is called America's War for the Greater Middle East, uh, A Military History. I haven't read like fully the Basevich book. I've read essays that he's written and I've listened to him talk. And the point that... I think that he makes that is really important is that American military strategy in the Middle East has never really had like a coherent goal. And to the extent that it's had a coherent goal, it hasn't really had anybody who is willing to actually commit resources to achieving that goal. And that's kind of where I'm coming from, you know, in in the previous sort of bit where we talked about Afghanistan. And that's kind of the historical lens through which I'm looking at something like Syria. Because when I look at it, I, I say I say to myself, like, what would a successful intervention actually look like? And for one, I can't come up with like a single actual historical example of like where something like that has worked. And two, I don't see any commitment on the part of anybody really in like people say that they want to do something about Syria but when you say you say okay well are you willing to deploy 500,000 troops in order to like you know I don't know end this conflict or something like that and the answer is no like it's always it's always something like well we're gonna fund this group or we're gonna fund that group and we're gonna like maybe you know funnel some weapons to them see if they can do something to me like when, when I again looking at the historical sweep of things i I just I can't think of an example when that's actually produced an outcome that has been worth working for. I, I think that the the mistake here is assuming that the only outcome that works is one that would a require five hundred thousand troops, and then it becomes sort of an argument at absurd. But what outcome actually works? Well, I, I mean, I guess what's interesting is you know from a Russian perspective, Russia clearly thought it was worth intervening to protect a client state and achieved an outcome that worked for them which was roughly a victory by Assad over the various militias who they've been bombing without much loss. I think a couple Russian planes have been lost. Sure. And like, I don't know, Assad seems pretty steady and in power. Uh, The Assad regime, I believe, has more territory in Syria than it's had at any point in the last three or four years. And I think 
Russia didn't expend a lot. And also, I think Russia looks good because they finally brought everyone down to a ceasefire. Even earlier, Russia looked good because when Obama didn't press after the red line, Russia got to negotiate that chemical weapons destruction pledge. Right. Okay. But so, they, so it feels like, I don't know, military power seems able to be applied by a state. You can, get, you can certainly, you can certainly apply military power. And, and, but, but what I'm getting to is though, is that, you know, let's say you applied some degree of force and like you kicked out Assad. What happens then? Like, it doesn't seem to me that the people who are ranged against Assad are necessarily like, quote unquote, the good guys. Like there's a lot of these, you know, weird like jihadist elements in there. They're all fighting each other. They're fighting Assad. They may want to fight the Russians, which is why the Russians want to be there to prevent them from sort of like getting too out of hand. But they're not like our friends in any sense. Like we don't have any like anything politically or like philosophically in common with them. So like what what is the what is the point I, of I'm this? Not like trying, Assad goes and I'm not trying to these replicate, people replace him? I'm not trying to replicate the Wolfowitzes and Pearls of Bush too. And I think in an interesting way you are by defining success up to replacing regimes led by a corrupt dictator who's a client state of one great power with a liberal international regime. I, I think, for what's worth, there are examples of successfully that happening, although maybe then they do require the types of intervention that, that you're talking about. But I think the far more common thing is to put in a dictator who is strategically aligned with your interests and serves as a client state for you. And I think there are myriad examples of that. Okay. Um, I mean... For, so for is, should that be the American goal in Syria? Is like that? Is that what you're saying? I, I don't know. I mean, was it the American goal in South Korea? Was it the American goal yeah. in South Vietnam? I mean, I, it was, it, right? It, right. <laughs> it kind and, of clearly was. Right. It, it worked in South Korea. It did not work in South Vietnam. I would argue, actually, that it worked in plenty of times in the Middle East. I, I guess I'd say two things. One, I think liberal internationalism actually has a pretty solid track record of successful interventions to put in a not-so-nice guy. Liberal internationalism has a bad track record when it tries to do... Uh, sort of complete nation rebuild projects, which I think are very, very hard. And I think it also has a bad track record, even at purely humanitarian interventions. So I will say as someone who has a very song soft spot for purely humanitarian interventions, that their bad track record, it, it leaves me with some sadness. But at least I'll say that like sort of defining goals down, the broader system supported a lot of interventions that, at least during the Cold War, are like I don't know, worked fine in the sense of the Russian current intervention in Syria working fine. Uh, I would really strongly, in American interest. I would really strongly disagree with that. And I think that there's a question here about like what constitutes American interests, right? Because and this is sort of, you know, my broader critique of foreign policy establishment, I guess, which is that I actually don't have any strong feeling that any of these people really know what they're doing and that they have or that they have anything like a fully worked out theory of American interests. Like, I think all of this is extremely opportunistic. And when I, again, when I, when, you know, if we talk about things like the Cold War, it's hard for me to see what American interests were served by, you know, supporting somebody like Rios Montt, who carried out like a very literal genocide of indigenous Guatemalans, like probably, you know, several hundred thousand people perished in that. Like, what goal was served by that just because he stood up and he said like that i was i'm an anti-communist and i'm a christian i mean like that like that was reagan's argument like literally like oh this guy's a good christian sure well, I, i'm not a couple defending, hundred thousand people so i'm not defending every cold war intervention yeah but 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 and, I, but i think that like when you look at it it's like a lot of these interventions produce horrible results like they just produce like massive immiseration and death so sure and 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 I how think does that work out <laughs> well two things a, I think we actually agree on this point that there's less separation between 
realist and sort of internationalist and not because of course like you know you want another bloody intervention Kissinger's in Indonesia like what purpose was it massacring a bunch of Timorese I don't know did that serve any like I'm not, I don't know right like and and weirdly of course Kissinger is described as a consummate realist so if you can explain what you know massacring a bunch of of the Timorese in Indonesia was that served our U.S. interests like you know please write us a letter at the pot so I'm not defending every intervention at all. I'm just saying, though, that I, I do think this idea that state power is always ineffective in foreign policy is, or military power is always ineffective as a tool of foreign policy is clearly wrong. I, I actually believe some of what Obama said in his 2009 speech that like war is a, is a reasonable application of politics to protect the liberal national order. And there are some interventions that I think are justified. You know, 450,000 people have died in Syria. Yeah, I mean, in Syria. That's actually more me wrong, than have died in Iraq since our occupation of Iraq, which is, which is somewhat problematic. Again, Syria is a horrible conflict. I, I totally agree with that. I, I, what, I, what I don't understand and what I have never seen anywhere is, again, something that looks like a reasonable goal that can actually be achieved and that won't just restart this cycle over again. You know, if you replace like Soviet or Russian Assad with like American Assad, does that make things better? Does that do anything to guarantee that this same cycle of violence won't break out in another 10 years? Like, I, I just don't see that. I mean, I don't know. It seemed to have been our approach in Egypt when uh, Obama actually like allowed the coup that took the Brotherhood out of power to happen because it was certainly in our interest to have a U.S.-friendly, stable client state as opposed to the Brotherhood like remaining on, on Israel's border, among other things. Like It seems like there have actually been, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but a lot fewer civilian deaths than there otherwise would have been had the military coup not happened that i i don't know i mean should we i don't have, know here's an interesting question should we have actively tried to stop that like we're, we get accused on both sides because the u.s gets accused of encouraging that coup which i'm sure that it did but you know should the u.s have have picked sides on the other side and like tried to keep the brotherhood in power like, i'm not i'm not sure that it makes any sense to pick sides in those conflicts honestly and, and this is again where i go back to the question of like american interests right it's not clear to me what American interests are served by, like, propping up Egyptian dictatorships. Like, what exactly are we getting from them? Or or propping up, like, Saudi Arabia, for example. Well, what preventing are, Egypt from turning into a civil war like Syria, but in a country that's five times the population, I think is actually, like... I, I mean, do we know that that's what would happen? Like, because what it feels like to me is that there is... I don't know. Maybe this is... Well, you can't uh, run over, the counterfactuals both ways. I guess what I'm saying is that if you want to justify, so so speaking of running things both ways, there are two ways of kind of justifying these things. There's one way of saying that the optimal scenario is like, given the existing constraints is that, you know, you have some strong man in power like Mubarak or Sisi now or whatever. And that's, yes, a repressive regime, but it kind of tamps everything down and sort of keeps a lid on uh, these elements like the Muslim Brotherhood, which, you know, so if unleashed could theoretically like destabilize the country and throw it into civil war. That's one argument for it. And that argument could be right or wrong, but that's not an argument that I think is like based on material U.S. interests. That's just an argument that says, okay, fewer people will die if we do this thing than if we do this other thing. Whereas like, if you want to talk about U.S. interests, I don't think U.S. interests are like materially connected to Egypt. Like Egypt doesn't really have a lot of the things that we want. And doesn't really do anything for us. Like Egypt is just a client state that we maintain because we don't want it to fall apart and result in like massive slaughter. 
okay, that's an argument. I'm not convinced that it's true, but I don't also, but I don't think that's what like U.S. interests are. I, I, I don't know. I, I disagree. I mean, the one war that the U.S. and the Soviet Union teamed up on after World War II was the war to keep the Suez Canal open, right? Like, okay, I think that's actually the only war where we were on the same side. Uh, the argument I think that what's in the U.S. interest could be easily applied against Bush too for the Iraq War of destabilizing Iraq and and tossing out Saddam Hussein. It's like, hey, look, actually, you know what? No, keeping this dictator is, in fact, in the U.S. interest. Why? Because destabilizing this region is very bad. We'll allow Iran, which is, a you know, to some extent, a client state of Russia and also a power, like, to rise. Like, I think what's interesting, again, is this convergence of sort of realist and, and positions that support a liberal internationalist order. Like, you know what? R- running it back, like, why do I consider the Iraq War to have been one of the greatest mistakes that I ever supported? Well, because... A, it was sort of a fantasy that things would turn out better. And B, you know what, the short-term humanitarian ends of getting rid of a dictator were clearly not actually equal to the long-term destabilization, reduction of American power, and, and actually reduction, support of authoritarianism, ultimately, that like threatens the international order. You know, the same arguments you're saying, why is it in the American interest to have this dictator in power? Well, why is it not in the American interest then to throw Saddam out of power? Well, it was clearly not in the American interest to have Saddam be out of power. But you could, I mean, you could just make a very like simple argument that it's not in the American interest because it just requires a ton of resources and, you know, manpower and whatever. And we just don't need to expend that. Like it doesn't do anything for us. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, again, the, the, the problem is, right, you know, every, at every juncture with, with these kind of interventions, you're looking at a counterfactual. You're saying, okay, like if we intervene now, you know, will we like save lives today will we save lives like 10 years in the future will make it less probable that the country falls apart but then when you again if i if i look back at the historical examples that has always served as the rationale like it's always been the case that like oh well we have to intervene in in nicaragua we have to intervene in guatemala we have to intervene in panama like every one of these things is always read as like we have to do something now in order for there not to be like massacres in the future Okay, I think there like, were a lot more serious. I mean, I think there were a lot more serious arguments. For example, that going against Milosevic was a more reasonable argument to preserve stability than it was to well, go against I actually, Noriega. I think, like, yeah, I mean, yes, I people made the arguments like, on either case. I think case. Milosevic is a much more like concrete example because, but th- but this is actually like I think serves my point, which is that in the case of the Serbian intervention, you had like a really well-defined goal and you could actually deploy like forces to achieve that goal and like once that happened like it actually was like it was actually possible to like bring about the thing that you set out to do what it didn't end up doing maybe because we've learned some lessons from the past is like we didn't end up like also empowering like a dictatorship that you know then turned on its like on its own citizens but that one situation i think doesn't also erase like many other situations in which that actually did happen. And so that's why why I keep coming back to this is because I don't see how, you know, it's, the, that case is always made, but the, the historical record is very bad in my view. So I, I don't, I just don't see how, it, like how we achieve the things that we want to achieve. I, I guess the question is, is the historical record bad on the consequences of intervention or is the historical record bad on the, on which interventions were justified? Because I think those two things are very different. Like, I don't actually think Panama has been a shithole since we got rid of Noriega. It's just like, why the fuck did we get rid of Noriega? That was a weirdo. You you really couldn't make yeah, a strong argument I, for I that. Mean, but it's not like Panama's fallen into a hellhole. Like, I, I mean, I think that the the two have to be separated. There are two axes. Like, was this intervention justified 
in any plausible way as defending like American interest or humanitarian interest. And there are a few that seem just categorically inexplicable now. You know, we were talking about one before the podcast, and it's worth bringing up because I think I want to transition to talking about Trump and how much rereading about Nixon terrified me. Like, why did Nixon so heavily expand the bombing war into Cambodia and Laos? Like, did you really think that dropping like a World War II equivalent tonnage of bombs on a bunch of like people not connected with the conflict was going to win? It seems very strange to me. And like, how is that in the American interest? And like, why is that justified? Sure. So there are all these interventions, which it's very hard to make a retroactive argument for. That doesn't mean, however, that there aren't interventions where A, there's a justification and B, you can see a sort of clear path forward. Maybe you're making an argument. There's no clear path forward in Syria. So it doesn't. It's definitely an argument that I would make. So it doesn't. It just doesn't matter. And I and I actually think that's not necessarily true. I think that, you know, you could either set up another client beside Assad You could have, as with the Russians, decided, you know what, Assad's your best bet and actually support Assad, which I think would have been fine and actually supported American interests more if you want to be super realist about it. If you decide that that's too morally objectionable, you know, you could carve out a Kurd state if you're interested in pissing off Turkey. There are a lot of things that you can do that don't just involve like, uh, we'll just end up throwing a lot of weapons at al-Nusra and maybe get into a shooting war with Russia. Like, I, I think it's sometimes caricatured as the types of interventions, but this is a refugee crisis that's actively destabilizing Europe and causing huge problems for the liberal and national order. That again, has murdered half a million people, which is yes. more citizens than have died in Iraq. And, you know, I think to just throw up our hands and say, well, I, you know, we don't have a clear plan. Part of the job well, of foreign I, policy is creating a, I absolutely, a clear, realizable so plan. So actually, like, I mean, I absolutely agree that you do have to have a clear plan. But at no point in the whole like Syria timeline have I seen anything that looks like a clear plan from anybody. There, on the one hand, right, there's like there's like kind of Obama trying to juggle, you know, sort of these all these disparate groups and really, you know, maybe sort of trying to be against Assad, but not really, but like not so much that you would actually do anything about it. Like and then but then on the other hand, you, you know, you have like Republicans who are like yelling at him about what, how weak he is. But then when given the chance to actually vote on something substantial, like just punt on it. So and and this is where I go back to my sort of criticism of again, the foreign policy establishment, is that it's one of these, I don't know, phenomena, I suppose, in kind of American politics that's actually, that's, you know, it exists at a relatively high level of abstraction. It's typically pretty insulated from domestic politics. Uh, These people all kind of like write papers for each other and talk to each other about whatever it is that they're talking about. And they're just all like kind of bickering about these labels and stuff that I'm not even sure what, whether they actually have any like fixed reference Nothing is emerging from this grouping, from this like intellectual corner that feels to me like an actual plan that like not only is it like a plan, I mean, that I could like personally endorse as moral, I guess. Is that the goal or is because I, I mean, I think I think you made the argument either before the podcast or during the podcast that roughly American foreign policy has been both weirdly self-interested but also not effective at being self-interested. And uh, which is maybe not odd, like as you noted, that the two can absolutely exist independently. But I do think that a bunch of these scholars who I agree are less differentiated than they make themselves out to be, and also I think certainly ineffective in, in a lot of ways, but I do think these scholars have a plan. I mean, you look at maybe one poll of this blob, right? The sort of uh, Walt Mearsheimer, they clearly believe that they have American foreign a, a plan that suits America's interests and that American 
interests would be better served by adopting their foreign policy, sure. as, as do the other poll, as do the, the sort of maybe romantics is a better word than interventionists, right? Like they, they like they believe American hegemony will be best served by adopting their foreign policy. They, they got a shot at it. They, they clearly failed. Yeah. So so I, I guess the the conflict, you know, as you described it between these two polls is sort of I would summarize it as this. On the one hand, you can say we are the hegemon and we can do whatever we like. Okay, and we have interests, and whatever those interests are, uh, we're just going to act on them. And if you get in our way, that kind of you know just kind of sucks to be you. That's I think in in a lot of ways I think that is the outlook that many people in like the foreign policy community actually hold. But it's not something that's it's impolitic to say that, right? And it's not it's not a way that you can like persuade people to cooperate with you. And even the hegemon can't do everything. So whether so, they're realist or nationalist, they both accept this sort of argument. I think that is power. a broadly based yeah. acceptance of like that. That's just like who you when when you are a member of the foreign policy community. I think that's like part of like your initiation ceremony is like you know you just you have to state those words you can pick a color but you you have to believe in hyperpower that's right that's right and so so on the one hand there is that there's like that element to it on the other hand there is like you know there's people who are liberal interventionists i guess who are who are like concerned about human rights and and what what i think a lot of people would like to see is that those two poles like merge to become one so that american hegemonic interests are like coincident with the promotion of human rights and i think a lot of people like genuinely believe that sure that they Samantha are the power and or barack that they obama would, or that, are, yeah, yeah those those are that. kind yeah. of our two best examples right but i think that in reality they don't necessarily they, they are not necessarily i mean they might be completely different and so you can intervene in something and just fuck it up even more and I guess the record doesn't make me feel confident that any of the people who are actually responsible for these implementations know enough to intervene in a way that will not just cause more destruction. I guess that's in the end, mm. that's where I sort of like get off the train. You know, as we said before, it's like the, the same people like cycle in and out of these positions. Right. And the same people who made, you know, the previous generation of mistakes are like now making like this generation of mistakes. And Is I this- just I just don't have any confidence that anybody can actually do the things that they that their rhetoric says they want to do. Is this true for, like, let's look at this comparatively, because I think what's interesting about both the Chinese as, as a sort of future superpower and the Russians as a former superpower is they both approach this without any interest in the sort of liberal internationalism part, mm-hmm. right? It's purely realist. Would you identify their own sort of foreign policy projects, i.e. China screwing up ASEAN and the South China Sea, Russia being in, you know, the Ukraine and the North Caucasus and Syria? Do you think they're going to look back in 20 years and be like, oh, we wasted so much money. We didn't know what we were doing. This like is for are basically our foreign policy experts everywhere always yeah. wrong. So, you know, will they look back in 20 years and decide that they shouldn't, you know, Ukraine was like a mistake? I don't know. I think that Ukraine is opportunistic for Russia in very much the same way that, like, you know, various Central American actions were opportunistic for the U.S. It's a, li- it's obviously a little bit different because of the shared history mm. and the shared ethnic component to it, which doesn't really uh, exist in the same way in Central America. My sense from everything that I've read, for example, about Putin and the decision-making apparatus that surrounds him is not that they're like... They're not really like super ideological in quite the same way as like, you know, whatever the project for the new American century or something like that. Like Alexander Dugan is a dude who like makes YouTube videos and not a dude who makes policy. 
The people who really make policy, I think, tend to make it, again, in a very opportunistic fashion. Uh, they thought they could make a play for Crimea. They turned out to be right. They think they maybe can make a play for Ukraine. It remains to be seen whether they're right or not. They're not trying very hard. They're trying just enough to, like, make things difficult, but not so much that they would actually, like, annex it. Just because, well, like, that seems like a really tall order to do that. Sure. But I guess to um, direct this, do you do you think American foreign policy should more resemble... Russian foreign policy in the sense of being, look, we don't know whether things, I think your your position is, I don't want to straw man yeah. it, whether you believe in purely American interest or liberal internationalism, you believe in hyperpower, that's usually wrong. Russia's pursued more opportunistic policy. Should the U.S. pursue more opportunistic policy? Or should it just, like, is there actually a moral component? The U.S. should do nothing. Well, the moral, well the moral component for me is like, what can, we, what can you do that best that minimizes human suffering? It's not clear to me that, like, intervening in Syria would do that. Uh, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, but I haven't seen a convincing argument that it would. You could expand it to, like, a lot of other questions. And Russia is a good thing to talk about, because, you know, as we transition to talking about Trump. Hmm. But, you know, there's, like, there's been a lot of, like, this weird sort of saber-rattling about, like, Russia. And and the question that I always come back to is, like, okay, well, the what do you do about that? Like, how do you act on that information? And how do you act in those positions? And I can't see a way forward that, like, involves some kind of like you don't want to start a war over ukraine that would be insane you know that would not be a way of minimizing suffering and that and and i guess like that's ultimately what i think that you should try to do i don't think that realistically like the u.s i mean this is such a strange thing to uh strange world to live in where we're like constantly told that like our military is weak and underpowered we have like the most spectacular military apparatus ever in existence on the planet and so like sure. this idea that like if we don't do something about like every single thing that pops up the entire liberal international order is going to collapse i don't believe that that is true i think that a you should you know pick and choose your battles in such a way that you again that you minimize suffering but there may come a situation you know, if like, let's say Russia invades Western Europe, which I don't think it will, but like, that's a theoretical, that's a situation that, you know, theoretically really does pose a threat to the liberal order in a way that like a conflict in, I don't know, in Central America or in, in the Middle East does not. And then maybe it would make a lot of sense to intervene. Yeah. I, I, look, I, I think there's, there's a reason, there's a bunch of reasonable things there. I think one of the interesting things is the U.S., because it is more committed to defending the whole liberal international order than other broad powers has this conflict between pure sort of self-interest and pure duty. And certainly, I think, to believe that they're always aligned is foolish. I think that even a Samantha Power just hopes that they're aligned and, and wants to act when they're aligned. I do think, though, that sort of writing out large sections of the world as not being involved in the preservation of the liberal international order, you know, well, if the Russians get to Western Europe, it's a problem. But, you know, in other parts of the world, it, it's fine. Actually sort of mistakes how the liberal international order grew. I mean, if you look at post-World War II politics, something that's very interesting is, in fact, and I'm not defending the Vietnam War, which I think was a terrible error, and I think has actually certainly slowed, arguably, the growth of the liberal international order. But I think that, you know, if you look at the decline of interstate conflict and the expansion of global trade and the adoption of rule of law and the flourishing of democracies, all of those things actually happened to a large extent outside of 
core Western Europe and, and, you know, core NATO, right? Sure. Like they happened in Asia and they happened in Latin America and they happened in Africa. And certainly that doesn't justify every U.S. intervention. Again, you know, we, we've listed a number during the Cold War that were not even at best, like no, no credible student of history could look back and go anything other than like, what the fuck? But I do think there there's a worry that if you if you sort of surrender the ground to these other powers, I mean, this is why Obama was trying so hard to push TPP, because Obama wanted a trade agreement that unified the rest of the Asian countries against China, right? Like he wanted something outside of, of their sphere of influence to, to wrap them into the international order. That's a part of soft power. And, you know, I, I think that's why Obama believed in it a lot. I, I think similarly, there are other interventions. Now, maybe Syria is the wrong case. But I think there are other humanitarian interventions which are so great. And and yes, maybe we should talk about a plan, but that are so great that their pure existence, I think, threatens the idea of the order. Because people can point to them and be like, oh, look, this failure of this order. Like, you're not able to stop this massive suffering. Like, you don't actually believe the things you do. You only do them to support your interests, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, but like, what's what's amazing, though, is that we, we have examples, right? I mean, the... Ex- you know, nobody did anything to stop the Bangladeshi genocide, right? Like, there's just, like, nothing happened there. It just let three million people die. Sure. And, like, it turns out that the liberal order survived that just fine, right? It was I, That was, like, a horrible thing, but, like, you know, everybody just kind of went around, went on with their day. Like, that's not to say that you should allow, like, a three million person genocide to occur. It's just to say that I don't think that those things are quite nearly as, like, connected to each other as as you might think. Right? Should we have intervened in Rwanda? I mean, I think probably, yeah. Like, pr- yeah. I think yeah. that the Rwanda was, like, a, an example where, you know, if you came up with, like, a plan and actually executed it in time, like, you could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Like, you could pre- prevent what, a lot of what happened. And maybe not all of it, but a lot. And uh, we didn't do that. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not ruling. I don't want to rule out like hum, humanitarian interventions just like on principle. I don't think that that is a useful thing to do. I don't want the idea of humanitarian intervention to become just a stalking horse for interventions generally whenever somebody at the top thinks that it would be a good idea to do so. Sure, sure. And and I mean, maybe the Reagan foreign policy is a perfect example where Reagan was actually very cautious not to spend a lot of American blood and treasure in any really extensive war, but had a lot of these crazy sort of tin pot exercises in American hegemony. I want to move to Trump. Yeah, Trump let's do is, that. Trump, we, Trump is really weird because Trump at the same time says America isn't this hyperpower. As you just talked about, you know, we have a military unmatched by any other in the world or, or ever in the world. And Trump talks about us like we're very weak. And from, I guess, one perspective, uh, researching this podcast actually made me much less hopeful about the Trump administration. And that was thinking, you know, I thought one of the few things was, well, you know, maybe actually in terms of Trump's aversion to certain types of conflict other than rhetorical conflict um, will actually sort of, you know, have a little bit of a peace dividend. But I think in looking at Nixon as a precursor to Trump as another sort of crazy realist, there are all these actions that are um, really despicable. And and I could easily see rather Trump sort of following in sort of the Nixonian path of, you know, oh, I don't want to get involved in that war. But what that means is wholesale carpet bombing of the Iraqi countryside. Like, you know, I, I, I really, I, there are a number of policy decisions 
decisions that that you can imagine Trump undertaking that would, in fact, not only not reduce the spending of American blood and treasure, but uh, sort of grossly increase the humanitarian cost of our interventions overseas. Uh, that is absolutely true. I, I just want to go back to like my take on on, on Trump. Is it's very, I find it extremely difficult to really, as as you might expect, to get a read on like just what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> you know, because there are a lot of people who like you know raise this like uh, you know they talk about like oh well you know Trump thinks like NATO is obsolete, but. As far as I can tell, this is just like another one of those things that Trump just kind of says. And the way the reason he says them is not because he genuinely believes that like NATO uh, should be disbanded and, you know, like all the different countries should go their own way. But just because he's like out to, you know, basically stick it to somebody rhetorically. Like, right. And so I have no idea like where on the spectrum of possibilities falls like the dissolution of nato because that's like a very complicated thing to undertake and it can't just be done by fiat because it's an actual treaty and there are a lot of people for example you know for good or ill there are plenty of republicans in the senate who are probably pretty allergic to trump's foreign policy should that be it and it would be like very hard to do like it's not something that you could just do unilaterally but on the other hand like Deploying troops is something that you could do unilaterally. And the question is like, you know, what, how would he choose to do that? And I have no fucking clue. Yeah. And I I think, I mean, there's something about his suspicion of international orders, which seems very Nixonian to me. Like Nixon had sort of a, a great success in monetary policy by disbanding Bretton Woods and severing gold from the dollar. And um, this is talked about in that, in that review of the Perry Anderson book and the LRB. But what I think is really funny is you can easily see Nixon having done that, and I think probably did do that, because of his suspicion of international orders, not because of some great macroeconomic thinking. And I think there's the same thing with Trump, where it's like, to the extent that he is just suspicious of the international order, how much of that is going to involve us skimping on our UN dues, screwing up peacekeeping missions, and then not at all being less belligerent. Like, just because the Russians hacked us, obviously there's no response which which justifies a sort of either believing the CIA or a bellicosity towards Russia. So I think you and I are united in some suspicion of some of the liberal reactions to Russia that want to start a second Cold War. But I don't trust Nixon not, or I don't trust Trump not to start a second Cold War. Well, right. Like, just because Trump is moderately aligned with Putin now doesn't mean that he is, first of all, he's not a great strategic thinker. Secondly, like, what about when U.S. interests collide as they already do with uh with putin like is trump just going to roll over in some ways it'd almost be better if he rolled over actually like i'm sort of scared of of a trumpian led escalation in a place like syria it's, it's very weird right because on the i think it was i can't remember whether it was one of the it was one of the debates or was it after the debate but anyway he said something like uh that he was basically for like he wanted more countries to have nuclear weapons and he wanted our nuclear weapons to be better and now in this article in the new york times from yesterday he's saying uh for one thing i think nuclear weapons should be uh weighed down and reduced very substantially like right who knows what what, what does that even mean right like you wanted before you wanted more nuclear weapons now you want fewer nuclear weapons like he didn't know what the nuclear triad was i mean i I think i think there's something to your earlier point like 
Trump is not playing 13-dimensional chess. He, he's just a guy who says shit. Yeah, and so, like, if, you know, if he wants to come to a con- uh, an agreement with, with Putin to reduce nuclear stockpiles, I mean, I think that's great, I guess, but I have no confidence to think that that's, like, an actual thing that will happen. Like, it just seems like to be a thing that he thought would be good to say, and so he said it. I mean, let me set the scene for you. In the last days of the Nixon administration, after he had been impeached in, in the House and was considering uh, his resignation, the there was a, an active move, and I forget the official who it was, that basically said, hey, if Nixon tries to do anything with the nukes, call me first, because, you know, he's really depressed and he's been drinking a lot and we don't trust him. And you can easily just imagine this situation with Trump, and it's so horrifying, you know, right. the idea that that he has his hand on the button, because I, I think there's the same sort of personal anger and retribution and, and fascination with power. I think Nixon was smarter than Trump in many ways, and, and, and I actually am like really horrified of, you know, I had this nightmare, which which I don't know how far away it is from reality, of, of Trump just deciding to use a tactical nuke in Pakistan because his, you know, a general told him, oh, you know, Zawahiri is in this, is in Kedah, but we don't know where in Kedah he is. And, you know, it's like, yeah, it's just, it doesn't seem outside the realm of probability. It's not. And I mean, this is actually, uh, so a friend of mine um, whom, you know, we hope to have uh, on the show at some point, uh, but you should all read his nuclear secrecy blog. His name is Alex Wellerstein. He has written on this very question, basically, like, is there anything that can be done to prevent this kind of scenario and like the punchline is no like it's and this is by design you know it's designed to be impossible to you know revoke or like you know countermand a presidential order to use nuclear weapons because the the whole idea behind them is that they would only be used in a situation of absolute last resort where there was like what nuclear war was already like an assured outcome so like there's just there are no institutional barriers um i you just hope that like Mm. you know james mattis is like literally living outside of his door all the time and would be like don't do anything until you talk to me we're Uh, relying on a guy named nicknamed mad dog to save us from nuclear yeah it's interesting like everybody's you know now (laughs) mattis is kind of like the sort sort of like you know, maybe we disagree, but we disagree again within, like, normal parameters. Right. Like, he at least seems to be somebody who's like, well, I'm probably not going to, like, want to risk nuclear war over whatever this latest, you know, bullshit on Twitter might be. Do you think so, there's any point in trying to predict uh, Trump's administration policy towards various entanglements, intervention, Syria? I mean, given that I think we both agree that he's sort of a guy who says shit, who is enamored of American power... And, and maybe a little bit cheap. Like, it's hard for me to play that forward and go, like, I think I know how the Gitmo shutdown is going to go, which is to say not at all. But I really actually don't know how he would react to various foreign policy incidents. Yeah. Like, Iran violates a minor part of the deal, but not, you know, it's not like they restart centrifuges. But does he care? Does he overreact? Does he underreact? So, like, I, I don't so know. I think, I think there's probably, like, here's my guess. At one level, right, the public face of this is Donald Trump. And when if something happens that he doesn't like, he's going to get on Twitter, he's going to get on TV and he's going to talk a lot about what he doesn't like and why he doesn't like it and threaten various reprisals. And at the actual policymaking level, there is going to be this like cadre of, you know, whoever is like his actual staff who will be getting together and like actually creating the, re- the actual policy responses. 
So you do yeah. you see? Do you think they'll just walk back a lot of what he says? Roughly, I think they'll probably they probably won't walk it back, but it'll be the same thing as like like you know Mike Pence's debate performance, where he's just like like that's his you know is just like a non-answer, but they'll, right. they'll like they won't contradict him in public. But what they'll do is they'll like operate behind the scenes to probably minimize like. I'm not going to say minimize damage, but minimize, like, insanity, I guess. You know, try to avoid, like, most of the worst possibilities. Because, for example, like, looking at somebody like Mattis or Tillerson, like, Tillerson is does not want the planet to blow up, probably, at least within his life. No, he just wants it to slightly warm by he two just, to five He just degrees. wants a slightly warmer <laughs> planet. He doesn't want a planet that explodes. He's probably going to, you know, be like, yeah, well, you know, the president is very unhappy about X, Y, and Z. And, like, he's just going to be, like, this plain-faced, like, dude who takes all all the rhetorical stuff and, like, condenses it into some kind of, like, sensible policy that doesn't mm. actually end up breaking out into open warfare, I hope. But it's impossible to say. I, I mean, maybe to put this a different way, in the sense of your expectations – there's still a possibility of a sort of virtuous foreign policy uh, Trump presidency in that it's a lot of bluster. He doesn't get involved anywhere. Tillerson is mainly a deal cutter. And and maybe to the point you were making earlier, liberal internationalism doesn't need the help of interventions. And so, like, can, can we cr- construct a positive case here? Like, sort of the ship sails forward and and later administrations yeah. conclude, oh, yeah, we, we didn't need to do all that shit. Well, I think that the kind of the best case scenario probably is something like, um, you know, like what I described above, but everything just kind of like continues in the way that it has been continuing just because that, I mean, this is never like the right, this is never a safe assumption, like trends continue until they don't. And so if there's actually like a genuine substantive confrontation as opposed to something that's like kind of like these local sparks that fly in isolated areas, it's impo- I think it's impossible to predict like what will actually sure. happen. You know, as long as things are kind of like on the same slow burn, they will probably proceed at the same slow burn. There's not a huge amount of incentive from anybody's side to kind of like upend the status quo because that just ends badly for everyone. So you just hope that like there's a lot of like save like the best case scenario in my view is a lot of saber rattling, uh, you know, foreign policy that is basically like resource extraction and theft, and then everything else goes on pretty much the same way. Uh, the worst case scenario is obviously too horrible to contemplate. Right. I, I mean, I I think I broadly agree with that. Although I think I'd cabin something, which is that if Syria expands, so if sort of the detente constructed by Putin that works to his favor doesn't hold, and Syria expands particularly into Turkey, which is a NATO member and which is part of the European community, and the refugee crisis increases further, I think there's not sort of a neutral option for foreign policy. Like, I think that Syria turning from a local, unbelievable humanitarian crisis into a global and European project threatening humanitarian crisis, which frankly, I think it's on the verge of doing anyway. I really worry how Trump would respond, especially because I think that it requires a high degree of international coordination yeah, with, with an mean, institution like, that he doesn't like, NATO. So, but Yeah, I, it, it's entirely possible that he could just cut the Europeans loose uh, and like, you know, effectively rather than necessarily legally. But it, right. it's like, you know, I haven't seen anything from anybody in any like circle that orbits trump that 
indicates that they know that they have any idea of like what to do with the refugee crisis. Like they, they're clearly, I mean, the Republican Party just generally, generally does not even want to talk about it. Uh, they're just like, well, it's, uh, it's bad. Uh, not our problem. And in some sense, like they're, you know, like I think that the moral thing to do would be to take a lot of those refugees into the country. Uh, but that's not going to happen. So right. uh, what's really going to happen is that they're he's just they're just going to let your the Europeans deal with it on their own, and it's just going to like the degree to which it stops being a crisis is going to be directly proportional to the degree to which Europe is able to do that, which is not particularly encouraging in my view. I, I should note that although we disagree on the merits of intervention, there I, I agree that the most humane policy would be just merely accepting lots of refugees. I, I guess I, to me, like that's not really intervention. I suppose. No, no, no. Like, I, I wasn't saying it was. I was uh, saying that separate, sort of separate yeah. from that, and and in fact, prior to it, in any sort of moral hierarchy, like us accepting hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees. Well, like, yeah, the, be, the most, the thing that would yeah, like would minim, the minimize, the thing that would minimize suffering the, the most is just to take these people in. And maybe another time we can talk about like why a lot of countries have problems with this. But uh, I mean, I think that's just like, that's the most straightforward solution is just to like take people out of where they're suffering and let them leave. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't solve like the Syria problem, but it, you know, alleviates the refugee problem. Agreed. I think, um, you know, what's funny as we sort of close out this episode is, although the episode was titled uh, with an Israel pun. No oh, yeah, maybe solution. we should talk about that because that's kind of like. I mean, it's interesting. We, we managed dis- not to talk about Israel. We for should discuss it for, for the for the finale, I guess. Yeah. Because that's kind of like that really, really, that's like the the fulcrum around which all of these things are, are orbiting in some way. One of the reasons that we haven't talked about it, or at least I haven't talked about it, is I think that the. Obama administration has, through no fault of Obama's, represented the greatest decline in the probability of a two-state solution working, at least in my adult lifetime. Um, And that's because, not because of, again, Obama, but because of the rise of a really virulent right-wing strain in Israeli politics, arguably where the center of Israeli politics is now to the right of Netanyahu, who himself is is very right-wing on this. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's no real two-state solution in the future without um, an end to the settlements, which there won't be. I think that the Palestinian people and the Israeli people both don't want a two-state solution, which sort of is also bad for a two-state solution. And I think that in practice, American options are very limited here. There's sort of uh, three powers at, at work in the Middle East, broadly, you know, Israel, the sort of, um, you know, Gulf satrapies, which are, are mostly Sunni um, and the the sort of Shia powers, and and I think that the Bush administration um, strengthened the Shia enough that sort of the Sunnis and the Israelis have been teaming up. But I think the the other aspect of that has been actually to to leave Israel in a position where it feels like it doesn't need to make concessions. Um, you know, like Qatar is much more friendly to Israel than it was 15 years ago. It doesn't like Israel doesn't need to clear room. And I think that's also actually been very bad for the peace process. Another sort of thing we can give to Bush too. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of like, right, in the absence of any sort of earth-shaking events, I guess you could say, is that things will pretty much grind on the same way they've ground on, which is, right. you know, terrible news for, like I, like you said, terrible news for the peace process. Because, like, just sooner or later, it seems that what will happen is that, you know, Israel will just build enough settlements that they will effectively have annexed the West Bank. And then... And then Israel not, and, really owns its apartheid. I and mean, then, yeah, and then yeah. they're going to own it, right? Like, that's what's going to happen. And there's nobody on the American side 
in in a position of power who might you know who might tell them no and maybe i'm like maybe i'm wrong about that because nixon went to china but i think that the use utility of that uh metaphor is maybe limited in this case yeah and and i think you know look i mean why did Kerry give that settlement speech or why did obama you know, abstain from the UN resolution, I I think in large part because there's a a great deal of failure there. I mean, the Israeli populace is running headlong into being South Africa under de Klerk. And I think that as someone who is a liberal Zionist who wants to see an Israeli state uh, within the 67 borders that is committed to liberal principles, it's, it's greatly distressing. I mean, I think that once Israel annexes fully under an apartheid condition, uh, you know, the West Bank and Gaza, if they do go back and annex Gaza, th- the long run view for that is basically the end of Israel. And I, I find it bizarre that Israel is basically committing to its own destruction. You know, this is this is kind of what happens when you have like a large part of your population is has this like, you know, apocalyptic religious vision that they're like, working towards right it's i mean it's you know whatever left remains on on in israel is like outgunned yeah. both metaphorically and not by the religious right and like that's I, and it. not just the religious right i mean and just the right in general yeah i want to blame the secular russians too well yeah you know because the russian immigrant wave the I'll, russian immigrant wave did had a deep right-wing turn they in did politics. they did but you know a lot of them actually went religious i mean this is uh, a lot of so a lot of them did not a lot of them did because it's a complicated topic but um as the episode title says i don't see any hope for progress here and it like pains me to admit it um because I don't know if I would like call myself a Zionist or whatever, but I, I just I just say that I think that, you know, an Israeli state within the 67 borders that does not like that, that, that that's the solution that I think it's like makes the most sense. And is probably the one that would cause the least amount of suffering. But I just I don't I don't see it. I don't see it happening. Yeah. And, and I think I mean, really, you know, why no state solution? I, I think that. If anyone were to look at 1980s South Africa and say, this is a political position I want to emulate from a position where you could have had two uh, ethnically independent states more on the model of sort of a, you know, post-Yugoslav confederation split up. Like, it's bizarre that anyone would choose that. Um, And I think that, that history is going to look so, so, so unfavorably. Um, on this. And and it is depressing, because I think that actually it is probably uh, within our lifetimes, barring something uh, radically changing, going to mean um, the the end of the state of Israel. I I, I don't see how you can have a apartheid state sort of continue in the in the 21st century. So well, that's optimistic. So on that cheery note, Thanks, Finers, and thanks, Jerry, and as always, our talent engineer, Greg Young. And Finers, join us next time as we discuss automation in This Is Fine, episode 1.5.